Welcome to the Hello Someday podcast, the podcast for busy women who are ready to drink less and live more. I'm Casey McGuire-Davidson, ex-red wine girl turned life coach, helping women create lives they love without alcohol. But it wasn't that long ago that I was anxious, overwhelmed, and drinking a bottle of wine a night to unwind. I thought that wine was the glue holding my life together, helping me cope with my kids, my stressful job, and my busy life. I didn't realize that my love affair with drinking was making me more anxious and less able to manage my responsibilities. In this podcast, my goal is to teach you the tried and true secrets of creating and living a life you don't want to escape from. Each week, I'll bring you tools, lessons, and conversations to help you drink less and live more. I'll teach you how to navigate our drinking-obsessed culture without a buzz, how to sit with your emotions when you're lonely or angry, frustrated or overwhelmed, how to self-soothe without a drink, and how to turn the decision to stop drinking from your worst-case scenario to the best decision of your life. I am so glad you're here. Now let's get started. Hey there. If you've listened to this podcast for a while, you probably know that Athletic Brewing Company is my absolute favorite non-alcoholic beer. For me, finding an incredible non-alcoholic beer to drink around the fire pit or at a dinner was a game changer in sobriety. And I love Athletic so much that I became a brand ambassador so that I could share the love. You can save 20% with code KCD20 on your first order of Athletic at their website. Now, they are not sponsoring this ad, but I wanted to share this discount if you wanted to try it out. So my personal favorites are their Golden Upside Dawn and their Run Wild IPA, but I want to hear what your favorites are. Just go to Athletic brewing.com and enter the code KCD20 at checkout. That's C-A-S-E-Y-D-2-0 and you'll save 20% on your first order. Hi there. Welcome back to the podcast. Today we're talking about how to make marriage work after you stop drinking and I'm incredibly excited about my guest. Dr. Bob Navarra. He is from the Gottman Institute, who I've been following for about 20 years. Actually, 20 years ago, before I got married, I, uh, my husband and I have read embarrassingly almost zero marriage or therapy books in the last 20 years. But we bought and read John Gottman's Seven Principles for Making Marriage Work before we got married. And it actually really resonated with us after four moves in all those years. It's still in my office. The pages are yellow and we still make jokes and what you'll hear about, which are repair attempts, referencing stuff from the Gottman book. And it's really sort of impacted how I relate to him and what I think about. So I know a lot of the women I work with and I've heard from are in long-term partnerships And their partner might be their drinking buddy, or your partner might really want you to stop drinking, or your partner may not understand why this is actually hard for you and why you can't moderate. And there are some common patterns and problems and breakdowns in relationships 
that happen either when you're in the drinking cycle and trying and failing to moderate or after you stop drinking and go through that period of relationship adjustment. So I invited Dr. Navara on the podcast. He's a licensed marriage and family therapist, a certified Gottman therapist and master trainer and holds national certifications as a master addiction counselor. He works with couples in recovery. He provides resources and support for couples who have been impacted by addiction and are now in recovery. So I think his expertise is just incredible for the conversation we're going to do today and probably for you if you're listening to this podcast. So Bob, welcome on the podcast. Well, thank you, Casey. It's a joy to be here. I really appreciate the opportunity to have a conversation with you. Yeah. I mean, I think it's so needed because this is something that comes up with almost all the women I work with or hear from if they're in a long-term partnership, because there are all these set patterns that have been built up over seven or 10 or 20 years. And there's all this fear and period of adjustment and sort of misunderstanding when someone changes. Yeah. But underscores some of that a lot of times is stigma of what it means, what alcohol means, what other substances mean, and why do people use and why do they have struggles sometimes? Some people struggle stopping. So there's a lot of a lot of information we now have to help explain why there are struggles and options that people might want to consider if they're considering making changes in their drinking or substance use behavior. Yeah. A lot of lot of things I've noticed over the last I've been working in addictions, my goodness, since 1987. So oh, wow. Been, that's been a while. Yeah. <laughs> and I've seen a lot of changes, needed changes. So there's, it's an exciting time actually to work in the field around this issue with people and to provide these resources. And I do feel like a lot of the stigma is still there, but it's definitely changing. People mm-hmm. are becoming more open about stopping drinking and thinking of it more as a health choice. And less of, you know, you're being labeled, but everyone is completely different. And it it's a very touchy topic in society as a whole. You know, it is. And part of it is how we sort of the, the terms we use to describe problematic behaviors. So yeah. sometimes like when I originally started working in the field in addiction specifically, I've been, I worked in, I've actually worked in the field since my goodness, 1980, <laughs> prior to the addiction specialty. And the terms that people use now are different than the terms that were used back then uh, in the professional community to describe problematic drinking, which has categories. So how we define terms really makes a difference Yeah. Uh, versus uh, non-problematic drinking, because not all drinking is the same. And the consequences that follow those various styles need to be understood and talked about. Yeah, that's really interesting. So now how do you talk about it and define it? Kind of think about all substance use. So we're talking about alcohol now. Yeah. But we're also talking about any substance use. And also there's behaviors that are associated with compulsive-like, addictive-like behaviors. So all of that kind of factors into the mix. But we'll focus on alcohol in this case, right? So it looks uh, this way. When you look on a continuum to say, well, what are the patterns of use from sort of irregular drinking? So maybe episodic every once in a while to more than that, to consistent drinking, to what would be considered moderate drinking, heavy drinking, 
it starts to move into this category of problematic drinking because of health issues associated with that level of drinking. Then there's a whole other category of alcohol use disorder, which is actually a diagnosable thing based on symptoms. And then within that, <laughs> there's mild, moderate, and severe. And when we get to the severe end of an alcohol use disorder, what we're really mostly talking about typically is addiction. Yeah. It isn't necessarily addiction necessarily at the mild or moderate level, even though the term, the diagnosis, alcohol use disorder could be applied. So one of the things I learned, for example, is that people diagnosed with alcohol use disorder now who meet these symptoms, at least two of the 11 symptoms will not meet that criteria in four years. Mm -hmm. now, oh, that's interesting. So it's maybe more situational than it actually is an addiction. Yeah. So there's a lot of things to consider in terms of developing a relationship with alcohol that you're comfortable with. Yeah. And one of the things I love, I mean, I've been a big fan, as I said, of sort of the Gottman Institute's approach to marriage and to also thinking about, you know, one of the most interesting things about the Gottman Institute, I think, is the premise that I heard first is that, you know, they can watch or you can watch or, you know, a couple interact for a couple hours and predict with like 94 or 91% accuracy if six years from now they're going to be together or not. That's is that right. right? That's correct. You don't even need that amount of time. Really? Yeah. There's things to look for that are pretty clear indications of a relationship in distress, mm -hmm. which can be predictive if left untouched. Yeah. So what's really important to know is that the research that says, okay, we can predict with a fair amount of certainty, 90% of the time, which couples are either going to be in great distress or not together in three or four years, mm -hmm. if left undone. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so those are research couples. The couples that get into therapy or have some strategies or a blueprint like you are identifying saying, oh, here's some things that we've learned from the research that we can adapt to. Yeah. Then that changes the trajectory. So there's nothing indelible about that. That's the part that's so cool about the Gottman research. Yeah. There's divorce prediction and then there's divorce prevention. Yes. Or it's not divorce, but relationship commitment stuff. So that's the exciting part of the research. Oh my gosh. Can we talk about perimenopause, menopause, and postmenopause for a minute? I am 48, so if you're going through it, I'm right there with you. I mean, hot flashes and night sweats, racing thoughts, the low moods, the poor sleep, it is not cool. And that's why I was really excited to find a supplement called Hormone Harmony by Happy Mammoth. It contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors like those super fun hormonal changes. It helps reduce menopause symptoms head on. And if you're interested in trying it, you can use the code HELLO for 15% off your first order. Women cannot stop raving about it on social media, but the biggest benefit is the simplest, feeling like yourself again. So if you're going through this, like I'm going through this, for a limited time, you can get 15% off your first order at happymammoth.com with promo code HELLO. That's happy, M-A-M-M-O-T-H.com. 
and use promo code hello for 15% off your first order. Yeah, well. I I love that. I think it's really, really interesting. And when I read it, it makes a ton of sense. So I want to kind of go into that. And what I love about the intersection with addiction or abuse or drinking or trying to stop drinking is I recognize that a lot of the behaviors that are described in relationship distress and even in my own relationships are exacerbated and aggravated by drinking, like Mm -hmm. your defensiveness or feeling resentful, feeling misunderstood, feeling judged. Um, criticized and the other way too, because you're trying to act like nothing's wrong. And so you throw the criticism back on others. So, yeah. I mean, the behavior, even in my own marriage, definitely saw a lot of that, um, sort of relationship in distress behavior that would, that would lead to longer term problems building up as my drinking was building up. And then once I stopped drinking and sort of changed my interactions, it really dissipated. Mm-hmm. See, you're hitting an insight that maybe, you know, as people hear this might sound obvious, but it's not always obvious to the people in the middle of it. <laughs> you know, I've worked with couples over the years where they're connecting increased conflict with alcohol after I say, well, was there any alcohol involved in this? And how often does that seem to happen? They go, Oh, yeah. Now that you mention it, yeah. that seems to be a factor. And one of the myths, and I think is really important to dispel, is this idea that people say things that they really mean when they're, they're under the influence. You know, Interesting. It's, it's, that is a total myth. That okay, total tell me myth. about that. What that means is that alcohol is a disinhibitor, right? So people say things that they, and they're under the influence. So their yeah. frontal lobes are not working the show in the moment, right? So that What's happening in the brain is disinhibition, yeah, but also judgment and do I really feel this? Mm. I've spoken to so many people who after a drinking episode will come back and say, oh, I can't believe I said those things and feeling horrible about it. Not because they're true and they felt bad about saying it because it wasn't true. Yeah, It was just an escalation in anger, that uh, momentum, which you don't need alcohol for that. Those things can escalate anyway, but alcohol tends to escalate these things. If there's a lot of distress to begin with. Yeah, absolutely. And I know that a lot of the women I start to work with, some of them want to stop drinking to figure out whether their relationship is really bad or if it's the alcohol. And I, I felt that way too. And not only that, I was kind of obviously, depending on how much I drank, sort of a blackout, grayout drinker. So mm-hmm. my husband and I really do not fight. Like I don't love conflict. So we, we mm-hmm. escalate much before typically, but when I was drinking, I would get really upset and fight and cry. And I couldn't remember what the argument was about in the morning. I mean, I remember him walking in and be like, what's happening? Like I told you I wouldn't do whatever you were upset about anymore. Mm-hmm. What's mm-hmm. going on? And I literally couldn't remember. And so I was like, oh, this is terrible. That's you know? scary stuff, huh, Casey? Yeah. You think, wow. So so we know if if this sort of qualifies as a blackout, which means there's periods of time when I'm not remembering something yeah. uh, related to alcohol use, then we know that that part of the brain that's been impacted, that usually takes a fair amount of alcohol to kind of get to that point. Yep. <laughs> it's one very thing to pass proud. that. I'm very you, proud. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So it's one thing to 
pass out from drinking. It's another to have a blackout, which is a different dynamic. And yeah. so that short-term memory or beyond goes. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things I, I really emphasize with couples is that, well, let's look at the impact of whatever it is that creating some distress in your relationship. In this case, if we're talking about alcohol, if there's sort of a uh, sort of a stuck place with it, then what I'd like to do is emphasize it as something that is external to the relationship, but that it's invading the relationship. Mm. So it's not about fault finding with the person who's a bit dysregulated around drinking. It's like, oh, there's this external factor that's impacting both of you. So let's explore what that is and where this falls on that continuum. So it removes the blame, ideally. I mean, we all need to take responsibility for our behavior. So there's that. Yeah. Yeah. But it's not to find blame. It's, It's just to say, here's something that we're kind of both swept up in. And can we just talk about it and kind of get a handle on what this is and what choices we might want to make individually and as a couple to hopefully have a better solution than what we've been trying that hasn't been working? Yeah, I think that's so interesting because the way you phrase it really removes a lot of the judgment against the individual who is drinking or if they're both drinking, because it's it's really true. I mean, it it sort of hijacks your brain. It's addictive. It's socially acceptable. It's everywhere. So it is hard to break away from it. And it does impact all aspects of your life. Absolutely. That pervasive part. And what creates this sort of this vicious cycle is that, all right, there's distress, there's stress. Then the brain associates typically alcohol with reducing the level of stress to numb me from the pain I'm aware of that I just caused or that I'm experiencing in this relationship, whether I caused it or my partner did it. So it becomes the numbing agent to not feel the thing that is so awful to feel, which then contributes to additional interactions that don't go well. <laughs> so, yeah. so the solution to the problem is actually the problem of the problem. Yeah. When it's that the chicken sense. and the egg completely or the catch 22, like a, that's right. Mm-hmm. a lot of people are frustrated with their marriage or angry. So they drink kind of at someone or they just maybe they get really irritated by their partner or they're legitimately hurt. And so they drink to numb out and they're mm-hmm. afraid. Like I've had women say mm-hmm. like, the only way I tolerate my husband is by checking out and drinking what's going to, ha- you know, I mean, it it's so complex and muddied. Like I don't want to stop drinking because what then if I can't stand him and therefore I'll have to get divorced? And what about the kids and the finances? Like that's how deep right. it goes. Well, that falls into this category of catastrophic thinking. And yes. maybe there's some truth to that for some partners. Uh, the thing is what alcohol does is just puts a big pause on managing the solution or managing managing the problem, I should yeah. say. So what's also interesting is that you know, the research indicates that if both partners are drinking at levels, maybe similar levels, then even if it's beyond a healthy level, it's not really reported as a relationship issue because both people are drinking. Yeah. Where it becomes problematic is when one person's drinking more than the other and the partner's going, um, I'm not really comfortable with this or whatever way they might express that. That's when it shows up on the radar as a relationship issue. Yeah. Well, and it's problematic in both relationships, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But, uh, and that's why I was saying earlier is I, I worked with couples where there's uh, drinking that was clearly impacting their relationship and they're both drinking high levels, which are problematic levels, yeah. better way to put it, but they're not reporting alcohol as a problem. Yes. And so when we step back and go, well, it may be contributing, here's the things to look for and to know about it. 
And they go, oh, okay. Yeah. And now we're getting to a decision tree. It's like, well, what happens if we don't drink? Yeah. Uh, what, how will that change our relationship? And there's a lot of fear about, will I be bored with you? Will you be bored with me? How does this change? Since we have rituals built around drinking, now what? Oh my gosh, everything you're saying completely and totally resonates. And what I found is a lot of those fears about what will happen to my marriage if I stop drinking are somewhat unfounded. Like, yes, for some people, they stop drinking and their partner doesn't want to change at all, or there's increased conflict, but they have more confidence and self-esteem and clarity and power. For Mm. a lot of people, they remove the alcohol and there's an adjustment period, but the marriage and their relationship is much better. That's right. That's it's like developing in some cases, and depending on various degrees of this, I suppose, like really develop a new relationship. Yeah. And here's here's sort of the promise that can be offered to some couples that are thinking about, well, will this make things better or worse in our relationship? And the answer could be, well, both. <laughs> it could be either or both. But I'm thinking about one research couple where uh, they both identified as having drinking too much, right? And so uh, this, this couple, I was my research. So involved these conversations they're having with each other. And they said, well, we used to have this happy hour where we'd sit and drink together for two hours. And it sounded to me like it actually worked for them. It didn't really escalate like it often does for partners, you know, and they enjoyed the time together. They kind of checked out on their kids. So that wasn't good. Uh, But they said, well, maybe we could have a non-alcoholic happy hour. So they tried to develop a new ritual and they said, it just didn't work. So they sat with non-alcoholic drinks and stared at each other, mm-hmm. bored to tears, going, maybe we can come up with something different and develop new ways of connecting. Yeah. And that's what you have to consider in any couple relationship. What are the things that are not working? What are the things that maybe you want to create that can fill that need for connection? Yeah. And rituals of connection is a huge part of the Gottman research that says yeah. it's really important for couples to figure out something that's meaningful, that builds their relationship and is positive. When I was drinking, I used alcohol to calm my mind, to relieve anxiety and to sleep well at the end of a busy day. I didn't know that alcohol actually spiked my stress hormone, increased anxiety, and as little as one glass of wine a night reduced my sleep quality by 24%. I was really excited to find Tanasi, a better way to find calm, rest, relief, and to reduce inflammation. Tanasi creates the highest quality, scientifically validated CBD and hemp extract products. They can help you relax and focus, soothe and relieve inflammation, and improve your sleep and rest. Tanasi's formula includes a unique combination of CBD and CBDA in every dose, which is two times more effective than just CBD alone. And know that CBD is a safe, naturally occurring bioactive molecule that is non-addictive and non-psychoactive, meaning that can't and it won't make you high. So if you want to create a sense of calm, to calm your mind, to relax before bed for a great night of sleep, try Tanasi. Tanasi's being really generous with our listeners. You can go to Tanasi.com and use code HELLO to get 25% off at checkout right now. That's T-A-N-A-S-I.com. 
to get 25% off your first order with the promo code HELLO and get ready to sleep well. No, I love that rituals of connection. And, you know, I have to say that when I stopped drinking, I'd been married 14 years. My husband and I met when we were like 22, first job out of college. And so, you know, I drank throughout our whole relationship and he did too. It wasn't until I stopped drinking that I realized that a lot of his drinking was sort of keeping up with me and I was driving a good bit of it. But Mm -hmm. I, you know, for the first month or so, we didn't go out. You know, we just didn't go out to dinner. We didn't have a date. Super easy because we had very young kids. But the first time we were going to go on a date night, once I had stopped drinking, I was terrified. I was like, Mm. what are we going to talk about? Which is crazy. Or like, what are we can do? Like, we used to go on a lot of like pub crawls where we'd have apps and drinks at like four different places. And what's interesting is we, you know, I had to think a lot about it, but then we started like going back to what we did when we were 25, like bringing a picnic blanket and books to the waterfront and like reading and listening to music, which was so interesting. And it was when I didn't drink a ton, you know, it obviously escalated over the years. Mm -hmm. Well, that's such a, I think a keen awareness you're talking about, Casey. It's like, all right. So if we establish ways of connecting with each other that work for us, at least to some degree, and it's no longer working for us, then what are we going to do to replace that? So it it just makes a lot of sense to say, if we're not going to do this, then let's replace it with something that will be healthier for our relationship and trust that we have enough interest and love for one another to move forward. If that's, you know, what you feel sort of underneath the motivation to begin with. And do you find that in the Gottman work and the Gottman book, you know, one of the things that definitely came through was that happy marriages are based on a deep friendship and mutual respect and enjoyment of each other's company. And keeping that alive and sort of remembering that in the monotony of everyday life and work and kids is a challenge for any marriage. But do you find that when drinking's involved for a while and and is a struggle, that some of that mutual respect and enjoyment and deep friendship needs to be repaired more than others sometimes? Wow, that's another good insight. Yeah. So when there's damage to a relationship from alcohol and or other things, there needs to be a way to manage that and have a conversation about those hurts so that healing. So here's what Gottman describes, John Gottman describes as the lifeboat for relationships. Repair. We all make mistakes in relationships, right? And so is there a system of repair that this partnership can sort of fall back onto? And within that, here's what I found with the couples who've struggled in that transition from active addiction or active problematic use, we'll say, to active recovery or active abstinence. Yeah. That's how you define these things is to say it's a transition and we're building new sort of a new way to relate to one another. So the healing comes in in our ability to manage emotions. Mm, I love that. That's what I've discovered. That's the number one thing. I had a client many years ago say he was stopping his drinking or trying to anyway, that was his intention. And and I said, well, let's talk about how you're going to manage emotions of excitement, of fear, of anticipation, your team won, your team lost. He goes, oh, so you're kind of like a feelings doctor. <laughs> I go, yeah, actually, that's that's probably not a bad phrase to use. So people who've been impacted by alcohol need really to look at, well, what am I feeling? What am I needing? 
and start working on strategies to be able to express that with their partner. Yeah. That's the cardinal thing. I, I asked John one time, John Gottman, he said, so how do you find interdependency? And he said, I define it as basically an agreement within the relationship for partners to express to each other what they think, what they feel, and what they need. Mm. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> what they <laughs> think, go. what they feel, and what they need. Yeah. And some people are really bad at asking for what they need or they feel like they're not going to get it because they've tried before and they just stop asking. There's that. And then if there's been problematic alcohol use and guilt associated with that for the person who's drinking problematically, a lot of times there's a feeling of, I don't deserve to ask for what I need. Oh, yeah. And so the boundaries are not so good for a person who's carrying guilt. Mm. Uh, necessarily. It's like, oh, okay. So it's really healthy relationships need to be characterized by your willingness and enough trust in the relationship to say, you know, I really need to have a sit and talk with each other more than was happening now Mm -hmm. rather than. So here's, we're getting the predictors of bad relationship outcomes. So criticism is one of the four horsemen. (laughs) I know you know what I'm talking about, Casey, because you've been with the Gottman stuff for a while. Yeah. So four, four horsemen, are basically negative interactions that characterize the couple's relationship that are highly predictive of divorce. Criticism sort of is the gatekeeper for the rest. Here's what's wrong with you. You never, you always, you should (laughs) get this. Yeah. I read about the difference between a complaint and a criticism and that Mm -hmm. a complaint is, you know, saying that there's a problem with a situation and a criticism is like saying there's a problem with you. Is that right? That's, that's really good. Yeah. So this would be a classic criticism. You never want to talk with me. Okay. <laughs> so I'm blaming you. It's your fault. And you, you, you. Versus the antidote to criticism. So here's here's some skill that, yeah, skills let's that are get really, practical. really useful. You describe to your partner what's happening from your perspective. You describe your feelings and you describe what you need. So there we have our interdependency model. So interdependency is good, not codependency. That's just the opposite. It feels to me like we're not spending much time talking to each other, with each other. I miss you. I feel lonely. It's important to me that we figure out how to increase the amount of time we spend together just talking about what's going on. Yeah. There's not one ounce of criticism in that. Here's what I see, what I feel, and what I need. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really good. And it sort of eliminates the defensiveness. I mean, your partner might get defensive anyway, because, you know, you're transitioning a relationship, but you're really getting specific about what you need. Yeah. And, you know, I think sometimes you can do what's called a preemptive repair. I'm not saying this to criticize you. I just want to spend more time with you and see if we can figure out a way for that to happen. I like that. Partners still get defensive because nothing is guaranteed. But they're much less likely to get defensive with that approach. And can you define a repair or a repair attempt for a people? Sure. So if something doesn't work for somebody, there's a an attempt to connect that not responded to favorably, <laughs> or there's a conflict. It may be an argument or just maybe a disconnect, uh, not so much a verbal argument. So then there that life jacket for relationships is in repair is an ability to talk about it and to say, when I heard you say that you didn't have time to talk with me, I felt hurt. 
And I just want to let you know that I really needed to have time with you. Mm-hmm. And hopefully the partner can say, Oh, sorry. You know, I, I will acknowledge that, which leads us to the second horseman. Defensiveness is the inability to do that. Yeah. <laughs> right. So defensiveness, the antidote to defensiveness is to take some responsibility, basically just listen to your partner's thoughts and feelings and needs with an openness. Mm-hmm. Say, Oh, sorry. I didn't realize that that was going on for you. Yeah. I'm glad you told me. I know. And I know that when I was drinking, you know, I mentioned that sometimes I didn't remember stuff. And my husband would say to me often, we talked about this. And I would be incredibly defensive about Mm -hmm. that. I would be like, God, I work so hard and I do so much and I do X, Y, Z. And of course, you know, or I would pretend that I remembered, which I totally Mm -hmm. didn't and be like, oh, yeah, of course. Sorry. Um, And either way, part of me was like, I don't remember this at all. So was he messing with me? Is he like blaming Mm me to get himself out of it? I mean, it was so complicated. And the funny thing is now, you know, I stopped drinking six years ago. Occasionally, he still does say that, like, and more than occasionally, like, you know, busy lives, different schedules, like, yeah, he has a basketball game and Hank needs to go to practice. And he's like, Mm -hmm. we talked about this. And I'm like, did we totally don't remember. But Mm-hmm. I react with that with no defensiveness or shame or inner turmoil. It's more just like shrug, which is uh-huh. lovely because I'm not mad at myself. Yeah, this is really cool. Now, it, it turns out in the research, couples that sort of have this more on the stable kind of relationship, kind of what you're describing now, there's not necessarily a lot of ups and a lot of downs. It's kind of more neutral mm-hmm. and non-reactive, just the way you're describing it. Now, the the thing that impacts the ability to do that also sometimes is kind of looking at our own family history. So if you grow up in a family where there's a lot of blame and accusation, then you may have learned, you know what, I'd rather be the hammer than the nail. Oh, so I'm going to come yeah. back with a counterattack, defensive reaction, because that's what I learned and I'm protecting myself. So that's kind of another thing to think about, like family yeah. of origin stuff and how we learn interactional patterns. This is one of the things I cover in the workshop I do okay. with recovering couples is to say, yeah. well, let's take a look at what you learned in your family about managing emotions, expressing thoughts, expressing feelings, yeah, and so on. That's, that's incredibly interesting. Well, so the first horseman is criticism. The, mm-hmm. the second is defensiveness. Yes. And Remind us what the antidote is for defensiveness. To take some responsibility, what your partner's talking about. Yeah. If nothing else, you you don't have to agree with what your partner's saying, but to acknowledge your partner's perspective to say, well, ideally, the gold standard, if you can authentically do this, which isn't always possible, is to say, well, I could see why you might feel that way. Mm -hmm. And just step into, I'm sorry that that was harmful or you felt hurt by that. Versus, I mean, just imagine that trajectory of a, of a conversation where a person says, you know, you didn't really spend, you didn't listen to what I said. So there's an attack. Yeah. Says, yes, I did. And then they, where's that going to go? That's going to spin, right? So we yeah. started with the criticism. Criticism inevitably leads to defensiveness. Versus when I shared with you last night some of my concerns and you didn't respond to me, I felt hurt. I really needed to have you respond. Yeah. And then the partner could step out of defensiveness who's listening to this and say, oh, I didn't even realize that. I'm sorry. Tell me what happened. Yeah. <laughs> I guess I was locked in my own world. 
unfold. Yeah. So you, yeah. what's the trajectory of these two different relationship scenarios? Where are they going to end up? Mm-hmm. If there's enough of that criticism, defensiveness interactions, that's what they get locked into versus yeah. an attempt to understand your partner's perspective just opens up a whole nother possibility for the relationship. Yeah. And sometimes people have gotten in such negative patterns. It is hard to, to change that. Um, or possibly one person is just not interested in changing that. They're sort of like checked out or so hurt that they've shut down. What about the other, like, I know there's contempt and there's right. stonewalling, which are a lot more embedded or hurtful or, you know, tell us about those. Okay. So the four horsemen are criticism, defensiveness, and then contempt is considered the biggest predictor of the four horsemen of divorce mm-hmm. and contempt is coming from a place of superiority as though you know more than your partner oh. that can come across blatantly as you don't know what you're talking about uh, to sarcasm like oh you have it so rough you know that kind of stuff uh, name calling so that I mean, that's these are things that are incredibly harmful to the relationship or anything that uh, so like gaslighting could be a version of this that never happened I never said that that's actually contempt. Now you may have a different recollection. So the response could be, I don't recall saying that. Yeah. But if your partner thinks you did or was reading between the lines, that's their reality. Mm-hmm. You know, so yeah. sometimes couples will say things like, well, I wish we had a videotape of this interaction. You know, and then you could see what you said. And the thing that's interesting about the Gottman research is that they actually did that. They filmed their interactions. And they still see different things. See, look yeah. what you did right there. I didn't do that. Yes, look what, you know, you're arguing over the same video that you're just you're looking at the same time. Yeah. It's all about perception. Yeah. And I can imagine that contempt or feeling superior or condescending or like, for example, if you're like, yes, I did say that because you can't remember anything or because whatever. Because you are an idiot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, that could be a pattern that someone falls into. So you said that contempt, and I think it's really interesting that you mentioned it could be sarcasm, which is pretty common, gaslighting, condescending to someone, you know, contradicting what they think is true, is the biggest predictor of a relationship breakdown over time. If you see that contempt displayed, is there an antidote for contempt to repair that? Yeah, the antidote really is expressing your thoughts, your feelings, and your needs. It gets right back to it, that concept of interdependency. Uh, the original antidote was described as creating a culture of appreciation. Mm-hmm. So what you're trying to do is build a degree of positivity, which sort of insulates against those thoughts yeah. or feelings, even if a person makes a mistake. But really what we're talking about, underneath any contemptuous remark, I default to this idea that, well, it isn't because the person's a bad person. Let's not default to that. Let's think about why that person might be contemptuous. And so often, not always, but so often it relates to their own background. And the thing they're accusing their partner of is the very thing they've been accused of in their own family. Interesting. So the contempt is an internalized message that could be then thrown at the partner in a defensive kind of response yeah. to protect their own sense of who they are. You know, I often, when someone really, I learned this somewhere, I don't remember where, but when someone really irritates me or turns me off, or 
I just am like, God, I don't like them. Someone told me like they are reflecting something in yourself that you don't like. So what is it about this person that's triggering this negative response? And why is it, you know, that way? And it's sort of like going deeper than just like, oh my God, she's the worst, you know? Yeah, right. And this this is what makes it I, that's another great insight, Casey, because one of the things I discovered is that a lot of times partners would be angry when they're when their partner says something, I, even if they do a non-horseman thing, like I really felt hurt when, then the partner who responds with contempt or this extreme defensiveness, sometimes what's motivating that is guilt. And they're dissociating their guilt by being, by, with anger, basically. Yeah. yeah. And so sometimes that's, that's part of the motivator. Yeah. And I know you said that sort of positive, interactions or positive feelings are sort of the antidote to that. And I also read that it, you know, you almost need five positive interactions to outweigh every negative one. Is that right? Yeah. One of the sort of the formulas that came out of the research is that especially, well, specifically it during conflict, uh, the couples that have a stable relationship manage their conflict interactions with a five to one ratio of positive to negative. First time I heard that number, I went, I didn't quite understand it. So when I first got my Gottman training going, and really what it means is that a positive interaction would be things like this. Huh. <laughs> Believe it or not. Or, okay, you have a point there. Or I hear what you're saying. I see it differently. Versus you're wrong. Oh my God, really? And you know, it gets worse from there to the language I don't need to go to. Yeah. And so anything that pushes back at the partner doesn't accept what the partner's saying is going to fall in that negative category. And the thing that's missing that for these couples is they're missing intimacy because out of an ability to manage conflict comes the ability to increase trust and to put the relationship in a direction that works better for both partners. Mm -hmm. So it's not win-lose. That's a zero-sum game. It's about what can we do to make our relationship work for the both of us without defensiveness, without criticism, without stonewalling, and without contempt. That's really interesting. So I actually, I'm glad you explained that because I thought it was something different. I thought it was the idea of if you walk by your partner and say, I love you or give him a kiss or um, say, I appreciate that you did that, that it's sort of five of those to, oh my God, you're annoying me, you know, like, but you're saying within the, within the particular interaction itself. Within that, when you're managing conflict. conflict. That, okay. that it's kind of been generalized like all interactions, but the original research I read was that during non-conflict interactions, we're looking at a 20 to 1 ratio of positive to negative. Oh, really? 20 to 1? In, in exactly the way you just said. So yeah. these are little building moments of positivity and sort of the smallest units of intimacy come in these, oh, you look nice today. And yes. little sweet endearments that you just kind of throw at your partner and go. In the middle of conflict, if you can listen to what your partner is saying and say, well, I Here's how I see it, but I see, I could see your point. Mm-hmm. What that means is it's building trust. It's getting right back to partners need to feel like they can express their thoughts, their feelings, and their needs. Yeah. And this is how we develop intimacy mm-hmm. by being able to trust that, that it's okay. We're not perfect. Yeah. Well, maybe I am, but I have a lot of tolerance for you. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, I've had some of the women I work with say, that they feel much more known and understood by their partner now than they ever did before. And it's because they've almost 
had to get more honest and vulnerable and share more as they sort of navigated life without alcohol. The fear is, I'm afraid you're not going to love me if you stop drinking, if I stop drinking. And that's what holds the pause button on the relationship developing. You step back from that and go, well, let's just see what we have, right? And I'm going to share with you some of my thoughts and feelings, and I'm not going to criticize you, hopefully, but I'm going to let you know what I really think, what I feel, and what I really need. That is incredibly attractive to so many partners that they go, oh, really? You want to know that about me? Yes, I want to know who you are. And it feels like we have something real as opposed to this image of what you want me to think. Yeah. Well, and that's interesting too. And one thing I always ask women to do if they're able to, like if their partner is, you know, if their relationship is in a place that they can do this is kind of tell them at the beginning, like whether or not they say I have a problem with alcohol or whatever, just say, okay, I'm taking a break from alcohol. This is really hard for me. I've read or heard that I'm going to be really tired and sensitive and irritable and need more alone time in the first two weeks. Mm -hmm. Can you take care of the kids bedtime? Or can we just get takeout for dinner? Or can I go for a walk instead of hanging out after dinner, which is when I would usually drink, like just being really specific about how they're going to feel and what they need, as opposed to your partner having no idea and being like, what the hell, you didn't put them to bed three days in a row. And now you want to go again. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So these, these are the things that can be avoided by doing that, but there, it takes some trust and some vulnerability to put your needs out, especially yeah. if you feel like they haven't been met. Yeah. And so sometimes that's kind of another preemptive repair. Like this is really important to me and I really appreciate if you would support me. I yes. think this will be good for us. So just letting you know what's going on rather than you guessing or me not wanting to state what I need because I'm afraid you're going to. Yeah. yeah and asking me. for support. I mean, that's, Another one that I always talk about and women feel so much fear around is I suggest that they get rid of, in a perfect world, all the alcohol in their house for 30 days in a, if that's not possible, at least their beverage of choice. So for me, I was a red wine girl. And to this day, we don't have any wine in the house, red, white, in between. Mm -hmm. My husband drinks beer and occasionally hard alcohol. That was never as, it didn't call to me. And so, you know, some women are like, it's my problem. I need to deal with this. I don't want to impact anyone else. And I'm just like, well, when you're trying to eat healthy, you serve your husband asparagus and chicken and he just has to deal with it. You know, like (laughs) they support you in lots and lots of things if you ask for it. And if they don't, That's 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 information and that's on them. But at least you, as opposed to them having no idea and opening the wine every night while you're gritting your teeth and white knuckling it oh. and angry and irritated. And they had no idea. Yeah. yeah. Being explicit about what you need and why. And let's just see how this goes. I really appreciate your support. Yeah. Hi there. If you're listening to this episode and have been trying to take a break from drinking, but keep starting and stopping and starting again, I want to invite you to take a look at my on-demand coaching course, the Sobriety Starter Kit. The Sobriety Starter Kit is an online self-study sober coaching course that will help you quit drinking and build a life you love without alcohol, without white knuckling it or hating the process. The course includes the exact step-by-step coaching framework I work through with my private coaching clients 
but at a much more affordable price than one-on-one -on -one coaching. And the Sobriety Starter Kit is ready, waiting, and available to support you anytime you need it. And when it fits into your schedule, you don't need to work your life around group meetings or classes at a specific day or time. This course is not a 30-day challenge or a one-day-at-a-time approach. Instead, it's a step-by-step -step formula for changing your relationship with alcohol. The course will help you turn the decision to stop drinking from your worst-case scenario to the best decision of your life. You will sleep better and have more energy. You'll look better and feel better. You'll have more patience and less anxiety. And with my approach, you won't feel deprived or isolated in the process. So if you're interested in learning more about all the details, please go to www.sobrietystarterkit.com. You can start at any time, and I would love to see you in the course. Yeah. Yeah. Great idea. One of the things that that cracks me up and that I actually I remember two things from Gottman before I was reading rereading this book for the interview. And the one was um, repaired attempts as an attempt to de-escalate tension in the middle of arguments. And one mm -hmm. thing that, you know, my husband and I over the years have had lots of different sort of subtle small ways that we sort of de-escalate conflict. But based on Gottman, which is kind of funny with the four horsemen, we sometimes actually and have for years like go, <laughs> like in the middle of an argument when we think it's a horseman, like it's uh -huh. just a joke. We're just like, that's a horseman, you know? And then other stuff, like when he's being, I feel like he's being totally unreasonable. Like his dad would be like, okay, pal. And so I'd be like, all right, pal. You know, like, and it works. It works to like, yeah. and I trust me, he's got a million of them for me and what I do. But, you know, what about that? Cause there are, you know, it's, it's hard when you try to de-escalate the tension and the other person doesn't take the rope. Right. So these are great examples. There's actually a term for this called embedded codes. Mm -hmm. These are unique little sayings and jokes only between the partners and everyone else would hear it go, huh? Right. But it mean, it's, it's meaningful to you. And anything that de-escalates the conflict is a repair, just yes. like you said. However, if it's not working, if you use humor and your partner doesn't laugh, that could reflect a number of things. It could reflect what's called negative sentiment override, which means there's so much negativity in our relationship right now. No, no matter what you say, no matter what you say, it's not going to work. The repairs tend not to work. It's just this pervasive belief that there's something wrong with the partner in the relationship versus partners in positive sentiment override where they kind of have the benefit of the doubt. It's like, okay, you're in a grumpy mood today. Uh, I don't yeah. like it, but it's not a definition of who you are or, or the state of our relationship. It just means you're having an off day and I'll, I'll give you a little space. Yeah. <laughs> so, so the, the same behaviors in, in negative and positive sentiment override have different meanings and values. The very same behaviors. Yeah. Right. So th these are the things that you're talking about. When you're able to laugh with each other during these conflict moments, that reflects positive sentiment overriding the negativity, which is really cool. So what happens when the negative 
sentiment overrides. Like you're trying to do a repair attempt and it's just not happening. The person wants to fight. The person is blaming and contemptuous. What do you do in that situation? So if it's reflecting uh, this negative sentiment, sentiment override position, you know, here's what we learned from the research. There are no less attempts in a distressed marriage for repair than there are in an undistressed, in a relationship that's not in distress. There's the same amount of repair attempts. They just don't work with negative sentiment override. Are there the same repair attempts on both sides? There, meaning, meaning both partners are, are attempting to repair in distressed marriages and in non-distressed oh, right. marriages? They would just say if there's a, yeah, if there's a, researcher looking at the number of repair attempts, what they've concluded is there's no less number of them okay. in couples in distress. They just don't work. Right? Yeah. So you you actually had the solution to this earlier uh, in our conversation. The way to make it move from negative to positive is to work on the friendship part of your relationship. That means let's talk to each other about what's going on in our world. Keep each other up to date. Let's really focus on what's working and and focus on that. And let's make efforts to connect with one another and respond to those efforts in a way that make us feel good. Those are the three, without getting into a lot of detail, those are the three lower levels of the friendship system. Mm-hmm. Love maps, here's what's going on for me, what's going on with you. Focusing on positivity, that's fondness and admiration, and then making bids to connect and having a response that feels good is bids and turning towards. Those are the three levels that need to be intact for relationships to be on a stable friendship pattern. Yeah. And I remember that from some of the books, like they actually have exercises of like how to go through your love map. I think that was it. And like asking questions. Exactly. Yeah. So love maps is one of the exercises uh, that couples are encouraged to do. So there's a card, there's a card decks, you know, like, so what do you think your partner's favorite tree is? (laughs) <laughs> so you answer the question and I don't know. And what can happen is like, well, I don't have a favorite tree. So it may not be a relevant question mm-hmm. or, you know, uh, a fig tree. What fig tree? Yeah. Uh, when I was a little boy and my parents would argue, I'd climb in the fig tree as sort of my safety hut. And, uh, oh, no, I didn't know that. Yeah. So anytime you learn something about your partner or you, and you feel known, that's having good love maps. Yeah, that's really interesting, too, because especially after you've been in a relationship for a really long period of time, you feel like you know everything about the other person and you make a lot of assumptions and you stop Uh asking questions. You know, and I've occasionally like my husband and I have been together forever and like I say something and this is very occasionally he's like, what? I didn't know that. Like when when did that happen? And I'm like, yeah, this way for years. Updating love maps is yeah. like, that's a crucial thing. And so love maps of all those levels of the sound relationship house, these are nine different levels that we discovered in uh, the couple's research. So it provides this opportunity to be updated on what you know, but it also is the most variable because you may have, of all the levels, what I'm trying to say, you may have a lot of knowledge about some aspects of your partner's thoughts, feelings, and world, and other things, not so much. Like, well, how do you feel about, like, what's important to you? Do you have any dreams and goals and aspirations that I don't know about? You want to talk mm-hmm. about it? Well, yeah, I've always wanted to. Really? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, and I think when you said updated love maps, that's something that 
that is important, right? Because your dreams change and your priorities change and your frustrations with your job or feeling trapped or feeling pressure change. And so, you know, it's not the same as when you first met. Right. And things should change. That's what keeps relationships fresh and new and updating each other with, well, now that I'm a little bit older, the kid's a little bit older, these are the things that are coming up for me that I didn't have to time to deal with earlier in my life, but something I want to explore now. Yeah, because, you know, I mean, I know that sometimes people feel like they're changing the rules of what they signed up for, what they agreed to, or who their partner married. Like, I know that, you know, we've been together forever. But when, you know, throughout a good part of our marriage, I was on the corporate track, and I was earning a good bit of money. And that was, sort of the way we'd set up our relationship. So when I was like, I want to quit my job and become a life coach, it it was a significant renegotiation of sort of the deal that we had going. Yeah. Well, you know, there's two in the sound relationship house. We got the friendship system, which are those three levels I talked about, love maps, fondness, admiration, bids and turning towards ways couples connect and there's conflict. Then there's the upper two levels of this metaphor of the house. The upper two levels are meaning. So creating life's meaning has to do what's important to me, like you just described for you. And then the upper, upper level of the house is what's important to us? What legacy mm. do we want to create for our children or the things that we share that, whether it's spiritual or whatever, it doesn't matter. The thing that's important to the both of us that hold us together. Yeah. So two, two different levels of meaning, uh, and there could be overlap. They could be very separate. Yeah. And you know, what's interesting, I've found that some people are like, this relationship isn't working for me, or I'm not getting what I need. And, and so I'm like, okay, well, what does a good relationship that would be satisfying to you look like? And they've actually never defined that they actually don't know. And so their partner has no idea either. Yeah. So is this something like an unfulfilled dream for me? You don't, you, my partner do not have to have that same dream. So there's that. Mm-hmm. But what's important to me and what's important to you that holds us together is a whole nother level of meaning that actually that's an extension of love maps. What do I know about my partner's innermost dreams, hopes, and aspirations? What do I not know? Yeah. And that's a much deeper level than I know what you did yesterday because we're sheltering together. <laughs> yeah. Well, and some of that is, is some of that like love languages, which I know is not Gottman, but you know, is it? physical touch or acts of service or, you know, all those things I've heard about. Well, that it it seems like a different thing that this is, as I'm understanding it. So rituals of connection fall under this, what gives us shared value and meaning and purpose. Now, how I express that is a sort of a love language moment, I suppose. And sometimes, so this relates, if somebody's making efforts to connect with their partner, but it's not really working with the partner, then it's a what would be called the failed bid. So a bid mm-hmm. is any attempt to connect with the partner. And sometimes they're not seen as bids. They're seen as irritations. <laughs> so it's like, I made this special dinner for you because I know you love this. And you know, the person came, I'm thinking of a real story, came from this Italian household where food was an expression of love. And her partner was not so interested in that, wanted other ways to feel loved and appreciated. Yeah. You know, so you have to kind of talk about, well, what works for you and what works for me? And let's, let's, be explicit. Oh my gosh. I'm thinking of two examples. So a bid is, is it right where I've heard like you're either turning towards your partner or you're turning away from them? If they, if they try to do a bid for a connection and you accept or don't accept. 
Yeah. So a bid is the effort to connect. And then the response is either turning away, which I'm ignoring it because I either don't see it as a bid or I somehow missed it, or turning against where I have a negative response, like, well, what do you want now? Or turning towards like, well, what's on your mind? <laughs> Any effort to respond appropriately to the bid. Want to go for a walk? Come on, you know I'm tired. We'd be turning against. Yeah. Want to go for a walk? Not responding because you don't feel like it, but you don't say anything. Is turning away. Yeah. Both of those take money out of the emotional bank account. Yeah. Versus a turning towards like, oh, I'm kind of tired. Can we postpone this to tomorrow? Or sure, let's go. That yeah. those would be turning towards behavior. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting, and I've noticed that you know some of that is you know, almost like asking further questions of your partner about something they're interested in, even if you really don't care, you know, like just as like, all right, this is important to you. I'm going to ask you three follow-up questions because it's a bid. That's exactly right. And here's the thing about bids is that's how you create positivity in the relationship. It's highly predictive. So we talk about the four horsemen. Stonewalling, by the way, is feeling so overwhelmed, you can't respond. Yeah. Tell us stonewalling first. Yeah. So let's just finish this. So Stonewalling um, in heterosexual marriages, 85% of the stonewallers are men. So the wife might be making a bid or the female partner might be making a bid and then it uh, for something or maybe a criticism and then the partner just shuts down. So stonewalling is feeling so overwhelmed. Typically the heart rate is over 100 and the parasympathetic nervous system is not activated, which is the calming part, but the the stress system is activated, can't think, can't process, shut down. So that is the worst time to have a conversation. And so you get patterns where if somebody's feeling overwhelmed, their partner tries to engage, they shut down even more, and then the partner gets even more angry. So it's a pursuer distancer thing. Yeah. As opposed to my heart rate's over 100, I can't think, I can't process. <sighs> Do some deep breathing. Then re-engage. Yeah. So that's and if that's they're stoic. totally stoic, the partner who is engaging probably doesn't even realize that they're in like emotional distress and are just like, right. you can't even look at me. What the hell? That's right. Yeah. I'm I'm thinking about a couple I worked with a long time ago where uh he made a bid in the session to go on a date with his wife, right? And she said, Oh, I already have a date with my girlfriend who's doing something else that day, time stuff. So He just looks away from her, shuts down, and then she's trying to talk to him, and he's not responding. Classic stonewalling. And I said, let's get your heart rate. So I had little pulse oximeters in the office. Uh, And his heart rate was 140-something. And his normal heart rate would have been 70-something. Wow. And what happened is he was flooded because he perceived and experienced her response as turning away. Mm. And she had no idea. She was just- No, she had no idea. It wasn't like it was a bad thing that- Yeah. He said, and then what came out, he goes, well, you complain, you complain that I don't initiate things. So I try to initiate something. We started therapy and then I get shot down. Yeah. Now that was a strong reaction because she didn't really shoot him down. She just stated she had another engagement. Yeah. But now he got triggered because he also grew up in a very critical family where he couldn't win. (laughs) So, So what we had here was a trigger to family of origin stuff that he was risking behavior, so to speak, with his wife, with his partner. And so it wasn't like she really did anything wrong per se, but it was a trigger that had to be addressed. And once they understood that he got triggered and was stonewalling, then the takeaway, the narrative is that you never want to talk to me. There you go again. 
you know, you don't talk to me at home and we're paying this guy and you're still not talking to me. Yeah. <laughs> it yeah. moves from that narrative to, oh, when you feel overwhelmed, you can't think and process. Okay. Let's deal with that. So that doesn't happen. Yeah. Cause I, I always picture stonewalling. Even the word is someone is taking a proactively aggressive stance by just shutting down. Like I'm not even going to respond to you at all where what you're describing is the person is in severe emotional distress. Yes. And they can't think and process. It isn't that I'm being passive aggressive. It's like, I, I really can't think. I can't process yeah. this stuff. So I'm going to, the plant shuts down. Yeah. To understand that's the dynamic, then that has a different narrative to explain what the problem is. Yeah. And that could be managed. That could be managed. Yeah. But that's got to be really hard in the moment to realize and and process and understand right because everybody's in their own feelings and in their own heads and you know all the years of accumulated slights and right. hurts and everything well if both partners understand the concept to say all right this is from research the single this is what actually came out that put Gottman on the map uh-huh. is is an awareness of when partners are flooding during conflict this is in their initial newlywed research way back at the beginning of everything that became the predictor for couples that were unhappy or divorced because they had escalated conflict. They couldn't withdraw from, Oh, they go, Oh, so flooding is associated with, with divorce yeah. and relationship yeah. dissatisfaction. So, so there's nothing inherently given that anger creates these reactions. It's just that when you don't talk about it, you can't process that has to be managed. So you can talk yeah. about it and process. When it's really interesting to think about the family of origin stuff and, and their sort of hurt or sensitivity or where they come from, because yeah, if your family of origin is very different than theirs, you might have no concept of that. That's right. Which is why it's so important for partners to discuss, well, how is anger handled in your house? They yeah. may know or think they know, but it's a good conversation to start with. Mm-hmm. Well, how about what did you learn about anger? What mm-hmm. worked? What didn't work? Who would? Who would get angry in your family? What was that like? And how'd that impact you? These are you know, great questions for partners to express uh, yeah. their thoughts and feelings about what they learned. And yeah, well, and maybe, in my family, like nobody ever got angry, like very uh-huh. waspy. We don't talk about anything ever and let's brush yeah. everything under the rug. So I'm highly uncomfortable with conflict. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. Yeah, that would make sense. Yeah, it's but it's interesting too, because, you know, my husband's like, I can never get upset. Like, you don't like any negative emotions. And I'm like, uh-huh. yeah, kind of. <laughs> you know? Yeah, and but to know that about each other and say, well, let's just do what we can with this particular issue. Right now, I'm yeah. feeling uncomfortable. I think I've said enough, but we end. It's okay yeah. to, to say that. Yeah. Well, and so communication is so hard. And you were talking about bid attempts, and that did resonate with me. Like early in reading this work, that was the the second thing, the repair attempts, and then the bids of like just picturing in every interaction, you're either choosing to turn towards your partner or to turn away from them in, That's right. in some way. And I thought that that was really interesting. Um, one thing that, that was funny about like, you think you're being nice to someone is, you know, once I stopped drinking, I started going to bed really early, like just, you know, not staying up drinking on the couch. And my husband still stays up to this day and watches TV and stuff like that. And so I think he was a little hurt that we don't spend time together 
outside of kids life work because I was just like, dude, I'm out. I'm getting up at 5am to work out. I'm tired. Um, and I'm not, you know, staying up drinking, which is fueling my energy and all that. Mm -hmm. Um, but what's interesting is for a long time, like the thing that bothered me the most was every morning his clothes would be like right by the bed. So four days in a row, there would be like these piles of clothes by the bed and he knows this. So if he listens and there was a, um, a laundry hamper, like literally five feet away. And I was just like, what? Uh, I mean, it really grated on my nerves. I was, I was kind of angry about this and like, how hard is it to X, Y, Z? So finally, months later, I was like, Hey, babe, uh, just wondering what the deal is here. And what he told me was that he came in and it was always completely dark and quiet. And so he put the clothes by the bed so that he wouldn't wake me up. So in his mind, he was doing something kind for me. And in my mind, I was like, what is wrong with you? Kind of. So <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. But now like to this day is closer to pile by the bed, but now I feel like it's endearing. Like honestly, I'm like, Oh <laughs> yeah. Is that, is that cool? If you kind of sort that through and, and, and you would only know that if you did what you did. Yeah. Saying, Maybe I shouldn't have waited a couple months of <laughs> gritting my teeth. Well, probably could have saved yourself some aggravation with sooner yeah. than later, but you got to it. So that's good. Yeah. But it's just, it's so hard to, even know what the other person is thinking or if they are acting hurt, maybe they're lonely or whatever it is. Like it's really difficult. This is where the check-ins come in, mm-hmm. you know? So I would often start uh, therapy sessions with partners turning towards each other and say, why don't you check in with your partner on how you're feeling separate from the relationship? So like a scale mm-hmm. of one to 10, how are you feeling separate from the relationship? Then the partner could ask questions like, well, what places you there? What would increase that number? Assuming 10 is couldn't feel better. What is I couldn't feel worse? So there's an individual check-in. Then I would have them check in as a couple. So they would both be the speaker and listener on this. So share with each other how you think you're doing as a couple on a scale of one to 10. The listener would say, what places us at that number? What do you think it would take to increase it or sustain it? So you're getting the stuff out there rather than having yeah. it go underground, which is where it does the harm. Actually, and most people to. never do that. I mean, I know we don't on a regular basis, like, but my daughter in second grade, like every day they go around and they're like, they have different colors. Like, are you red, orange, green based on how they're feeling? You know, are they oh, bad? Long, you know, like in class every morning. Yeah. Well, you know, a great way to start a day with your partner, if your schedules allow for it, is say, well, so what's on your schedule today? Mm-hmm. And then at the end of the day, or when you re-engage with one another, you say, hey, how did that meeting go? What was that? What happened during the phone calls? So you're following up. Yeah. And you're kind of creating this ritual of connection that says, I'm thinking of you and I'm wondering how things went for you. Yeah. Or even taking a moment to like greet your partner when you come in before you jump on the phone or say hi to the kids or go upstairs. <laughs> yes. or- I've had more than one couple say, I wish my partner greeted me like my partner greets the dog. Oh my God. Right. <laughs> right. And, and hey, he's probably you know. like, my dog's nicer to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that could be the case. Yeah. Very cool. Well, so I know that people are going to want, I mean, honestly, I'm sitting here like, God, you know, I wish Mike and I would go to the Gottman, you know, weekend things or, um, therapy just because it would be super interesting to learn all this about each other, not even because 
we're struggling at this moment. But if someone's listening to this and are like, okay, this is something that would really help my relationship. How can they follow up and learn more about you and, and work with you? Yeah. So I only do workshops. So I've, I've officially closed my private practice after 40 years, Casey, wow. I've been doing private practice. Yes. So there's that. So if you're interested in some additional support, it's sort of generic perspective. Uh, you can certainly go on Gottman.com and find a therapist through Gottman.com or, and or there's a lot of resources uh, for couples in terms of uh, the art and science of love workshop, for instance, on that you can download on demand, that kind of thing. So there's, there's resources there. There's the Gottman blog. There's the, there's a lot of things you can check out yeah. there. My specialty is working with couples impacted by addiction uh, who are now in recovery. So I offer a workshop. This is this research-based thing to say the transition from active addiction to active recovery is really traumatic for couples. And these couples are underserved and the divorce rate is really high because people are not getting help sooner than later, even yeah. after getting into recovery. So Roadmap for the Journey is my workshop. And I've got three of them scheduled for this year, 2022. Too. Are they virtual? Are they in person in a certain location? There, it's accommodation. So there's uh, what you register. Then there is there are about two hours of on-demand videos that I have partners see before the workshop. Then the workshop itself is live, virtually. Yeah. <laughs> so it's five hours on consecutive Saturdays in which we're giving. I'm giving the research-based communication tools. Then video demonstrations of how to implement these tools. Then couples break out privately into their own breakout room. No other couples. They get stuck. Then they can invite me, just me. And then I help them get back on track or answer questions. And we cover how to manage conflict, how to develop uh, a way to talk about trauma from the past mm -hmm. in, a, in a way that allows you to heal and how to incorporate and support individual and relationship recovery into your everyday life. So it's a, it's a 10 hours, five hours each consecutive yeah. Saturday, a couple of hours in the morning, there's breaks and there's an hour break between morning and afternoon sessions. And it's something I am really excited about. This is yeah. my I mean, it sounds thing. wonderful. And when you say couples in recovery are both partners in recovery is, is one used to use a substance and, and now doesn't and the other, you know, just didn't have that abuse dependence issue or, um, you know, do they need to be, um, can they be sort of earlier in the spectrum versus, you know, going to rehab or anything like that? It like doesn't require going to rehab or going to AA or Al-Anon or anything. It just means somebody's identified some addiction. So mm -hmm. it's, it's that. And one or both partners may have that uh, behavior in their background. And I screen couples uh, because they need to have so that the active, the addiction is not active. Yeah, they've, they've so moved on no, from that. Yeah, but they're in recovery, however they define that. And that's, yeah. I don't have a set definition. I just need to know that there's no active addiction because it needs to be a safe environment for all the participants. Yes, it's really It doesn't mean the partner doesn't forward. drink. Yeah, so if the non-addicted partner might drink, as long as it's not problematic drinking. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. it's really hard to make any progress if someone's still in that cycle. Yeah, right. Yeah. Exactly. 
Well, so how do people find your online workshops? Uh, probably the easiest way is to go to the website, which is uh, drrobertnavara.com. So DR, no period, Robert Navara, N-A-V-A-R-R-A.com. And then I also have another website just for informational purposes. And that's got uh, a blog for couples in addiction recovery. It's couplerecovery.org. Very cool. And I will put all of those links in the show notes. So anyone interested in this, they can just go to the website for this episode and find all that information. This has been incredibly interesting. I love your expertise at that, you know, intersection between the Gottman work, the research-based and the addiction recovery aspect of it and couples. Like those four things to me are like, really incredible that so many people need help with. Oh, yeah. And I have to say this, Casey, is that couples are really underserved. People have to work hard to find me. Unfortunately, I've got to change that. Say we've been impacted by addiction and recovery, and there's no services out there. Nobody keeps separating us. And I'm sort of on this mission to make couple recovery the standard. So I've done, I brought this workshop to Betty Ford Hazleton and then invited to do it in different treatment programs. And it's so well received, but it's really at the beginning phases of trying to change how we do recovery to yeah. include this relational approach. So well, that's yeah, my mission. And, and so much of it is sort of either individual, like people are, are letting go of, in this case, drinking and they're working on themselves or um, they go to traditional marriage therapy or talk therapy or whatever it is. And the therapist isn't well-versed in sort of the unique aspect of right. all of this. That's right. That is a problem. That's exactly right. Yeah. So these couples awesome. are underserved. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I think this has been super informative and I learned a lot. Well, I really appreciated our conversation too. And all the insights you're sharing with your listeners. These are great insights. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hello Someday podcast. If you're interested in learning more about me, the work I do, and access free resources and guides to help you build a life you love without alcohol, please visit hellosomedaycoaching.com. And I would be so grateful if you would take a few minutes to rate and review this podcast so that more women can find it and join the conversation about drinking less and living more. I'm Madeline and I'm the host of the Happiest Sober Podcast. I got sober in my 20s after a decade of gray area drinking and the greatest plot twist of all time was realizing that alcohol, the thing that I thought made my life the most happy and fun and exciting, was actually the exact thing preventing me from living my happiest and best life. My mom is 40 years sober and she joins me on my podcast very often. I like to call her my part-time co-host and I also bring you solo episodes where I share my top tips, tricks, and mindset shifts in sobriety and lots of how-tos for navigating all the things sober, from weddings to parties to holidays to bachelorette parties to trips. I'm also joined by so many guests who come on and share their sober stories, and they're all so, so inspiring. I'm here to show you that life doesn't end when you quit drinking. In fact, it's very much the opposite. And no matter what your relationship was with alcohol, life can be the absolute happiest when you're sober. New episodes come out every Tuesday. You can listen to Happiest Sober Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.